0: Uh, spend a few minutes of your day here with me, and I have a great episode for you today. Today, my guest is Andy Andrews. Andy is a New York Times bestselling author and in-demand speaker. He's written several books. A couple of the more noticeable ones are The Noticer and The Traveler's Gift. I read The Traveler's Gift probably about 10 years ago, and it was was a very enjoyable read, and I I absolutely loved it, especially the lessons and the history that he mixes all throughout it, which is a big theme of, of Andy's work, and he's recently re-released the book "How to Kill 11 Million People." And we're going to talk about that in my conversation with him as well. But Andy Andy is a great thought leader and a, and a big and a person with a ton of influence, and so I'm super excited that he decided to spend some time with me today. And we're going to get into that conversation in just a second. But before that, I want to let you know that the music that you're listening to is brought to you by my good friend Sam Massey. And if you have any audio or video needs, he is the person to see for any of that stuff about potentially working with him on it. Now, today I'm talking with Andy Andrews. And without any further ado, here's our conversation. So excited to have you on the podcast today!
1: Thank you, buddy. Honored to be here.
0: Yeah, and and just as we're getting started, you know, you you recently uh, re-released an, an updated version of your book. How do you kill 11 million people? And um, I want I want to get into like why why you decided to re-release it and update it right now. But before that, I mean, I just think the place to start is so like, how do you kill 11 million people?
1: Yeah, that is a an odd title, isn't it? The subtitle is "Why the Truth Matters More Than You Think," mm-hmm. and the the whole premise was done by uh, a thought I had about the Holocaust. You know, uh, during World War II, when uh, so many people were killed by the Nazis in concentration camps, and something that always bothered me about that, and I didn't really, you know, other than the obvious, and and. And I couldn't really articulate what it was that was giving me a problem, but uh, I, I finally was watching a, uh, a documentary one day and realized that I'd never heard this addressed. And and that is, you know, you, when you watch the film or you see the pictures, there's, you know, a guard every ten yards, and then there's thousands of people loading themselves onto the trains very peacefully, and. You know, my question was, you know, how do you how do you get people to do that week after week, month after month after month? You know, how do you? So the question, how do you kill eleven million people? It doesn't mean, you know, what method did they use? We know the methods they used, and it doesn't mean how crazy do you have to be? History's full of people that were that crazy. Uh, you know, it's it's how do you get that many people over a period of time to participate in their deaths, and and uh, when I found the answer, I was kind of stunned. And I was stunned at how simple the answer was and stunned that it was a method still being used today. And and the, the answer to how do you kill 11 million people is you lie to them. And so Nazi Germany had a policy of lies, a written policy of lies that they used uh, to... Uh, to make those people pliable at that time and to keep them from rioting. Because, you know, when you look at that many people and that few guards, you know, you think, why didn't they rush them? Why didn't they run? Why didn't they fight? Yeah, you couldn't have killed them all. And, and yet they just, you know, loaded their families onto the rail cars. And, and so it was a policy of lies that calmed them and, basically herded them in a direction of the liar's choosing. Mm
0: -hmm. When, when, when did you first like encounter this, this story and, and what, um, I mean, and you kind of talked about it a little bit, but like, what made you decide, Hey, this, this is a book worth writing because I think we we all kind of encounter similar like rabbit trails like that to where, you know, we, we hear something and then we go, I, I want to learn more about that. What made you decide I, I need to write a book about this?
1: Well, it was it was the fact that so many people um, are, are unaware of the uh, of the reality of what happened there. You know, people think that, well, it was the Jews and um, and of the 11 million people, five million of them weren't even Jewish the Jews were just the first to be targeted. Um, you know, there's a whole, and this is all in the book, this is, um, you know, there's a whole uh, list of the colors that were used. I mean, the, the uh, you know, we all heard of the yellow stars and the yellow triangles that the the Jewish people had to wear. And, you And the the thing is that, uh, you know, after that all started happening, they had the the brown triangles uh, identified gypsies and people of Italian descent. Uh, Purple triangles and stars were worn by Catholic priests, Jehovah's Witnesses, and Christian leaders who ran afoul of the government. Um, Black marked a person as a vagrant. That was worn by anybody lacking documentation when asked for proof of a permanent address. Uh, blue triangles and stars were for some people who had moved to Germany from other countries, unless they were Jewish, in which case, you know, they wore the yellow. Uh, red triangles, you wore red if you were a member of a trade union, a Democrat, a Freemason, or any number of the categories that, that would label you as a political nonconformist. Pink badges, identified homosexuals. Um, green badges were given to common thieves and murderers. And since they weren't suspect politically, the green badges were in charge of the other ones. And and so, you know, people I, I think need to understand this was not, there's a couple of things. One is this was not unique to history. You know, this is not some anomaly that we've seen. Um, because, you know, you could use any number of, uh, of of people, you know. I mean, you could, you know, in the Soviet Union, it was like 61 million. And, and that's just their records. That's their records of how many, um, you know, people that they killed. And then, um, let's see, World War One. there was uh, Turkey's government decided to exterminate every Armenian in the country. And uh, so they institutionally killed their famous scholars, their own religious leaders, their own children. And there were 2 million of them um, in the last 100 years, man. There's 3 million in North Korea, a million each in uh, Pakistan, Baltic states. Just, you know, it's, it's all over the world. But the, but the thing is that, all those 5 million other people that got all those different colors, you know, they got their badges and they got thrown into the camps long after they saw the yellow badges being put on the Jewish people and didn't say anything.
0: Yeah. What? Uh, I mean, that that's, that's one of the interesting things about, um, about the, about even just reading the book, because I remember I first encountered it, you know, about uh, about eight years ago. And so and I, I'm forgetting what the reference is. Um, but I, I remember, I don't think it's quite in it might be in your book. But it's how they talked about how, you know, they came after the Jewish people, and we said nothing. And before we knew it, they were coming after us. And, yeah. And I'm uh, just really curious into what made you want to re-release everything, um, you know, re-release the book right now.
1: Well, I always, you know, I I think that the political discourse is getting meaner and meaner now, and it's more disparate. There, you know, there used to be a time in America where the two sides would like duke it out and then go out and have drinks together afterwards, you know. And um, I think, you know, we look at these guys now, they don't even shake hands. <laughs> you know, I, I'm not sure they're going out with their families. And so at some point, it, you know, the, the essence of leadership is influence. And the essence of influence is agreement, not disagreement. You don't follow somebody that you fundamentally disagree with. And you can't lead people who disagree with you? You have to find some common ground, and so we we need leadership in our country, obviously. And 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 so I wanted to write something that did not say Republican, did not say Democrat, did not say uh, liberal, didn't say conservative, and yet everybody who read it would agree with it. And that was that was kind of what I wanted to do. And and so I had to find something that that everybody agreed with. And and you know the most obvious thing is that we all want to be told the truth. None of us want to be lied to. I mean, and if you walk down the street and said you know, it, it doesn't matter who you ask. If you if you said, do you think that our political leaders should be able to lie to us or should they have to tell us the truth? Everybody you talk to would say, oh, they should have to tell the truth.
0: Yep, Cop- completely agree. How, how do you or how have you seen people um, be able to discern what the truth Currently is right now because especially in the age of of, inf- of so much misinformation or so much conflicting information and even um, fake news what are maybe some filters or, or some things that help you like filter through and see what the truth is
1: you know I th- I think something has to uh, for a thinking person something has to make sense I mean it it has to make sense on a on a larger level. And you have to, you have to think through things, even right now with this virus going on, I mean, we, we, you know, we've got to understand that as bad as it is, the media has a vested interest in, you know, bad news. I mean, it, it, their studies show that, uh, that their ratings are higher when things are bad, when there's a crisis, their ratings are higher, people are gathering around the television set. I mean, that's just a fact. That's not, you know, anything wrong with that. That's just a fact, okay? And and so if their ratings are higher when the news is bad, then that means they make more money when the news is bad. And so, you know, human beings wanting to make more money, you, you can't, blame them for just, you know, tilting a little bit. But we are responsible for seeing through a little bit of that too. And, and, and just recognizing that there is a reason that they continue to say there's a 2% death rate and nobody ever mentions there's a 98% survival rate you know and so we have to discern we have to to understand that that of course the guy who has a Chevrolet dealership is going to have many reasons that that is the best car and so you just you know common sense has something to do with it and and um and i think also that that we should probably pay pay a little more attention to you know to, to reading and research and thinking beyond what is true there because there are things that are true and yet at their foundation they're not the truth right and it's not necessarily that it's a lie it's just not the entire foundational truth um you know one of the things that really can hurt a business is, is a business that stops at what is true. You know, they get an answer and it's true. And of course they stop there because it's the answer and it's producing results. But people, uh, you know, businesses who are in first and second place are, are typically very vulnerable to this kind of thinking because they're getting results and you know they look around there's nobody getting really significantly better results and yet there's a lot more they could do but because they don't see it they don't continue to look for it
0: Mm -hmm. why do you think we tend to or so easily buy into like the lie versus the truth
1: well i think i think one great reason caleb is most of us are, you know, most of us are pretty honest people, and it's just, it's just kind of, we're not looking for it, you know. Is if somebody came, you know, if somebody came to you and said, uh, you know, hey, I have this uh, awesome bicycle shop, and you should stop in sometime, and they handed you a card, and it said. John, uh, bicycles are us. It wouldn't be your first thought. I bet this is a fake card, and I bet this guy had this made up to try to. I, you know, you just would, you just don't think that. And yet, it's real easy for somebody to just go make fake business cards and fool all the people they want. And you know, we just don't. And, and in fact, um, you know, Hitler actually said he wrote in Mein Kampf. He said, he said, make the lie. Big, and tell it over and over and over again, and they'll believe you. And and it's it it's curious to look at the pathology of somebody who lies all the time, because if like if I told you uh, Caleb, I did not steal your wallet. Okay, well that would be a lie, but at least it was a lie for a reason. I didn't want to get caught. Right. But if I said to you, uh, Caleb, man, I was just coming into your studio and I met Michael Jordan out, who's out playing basketball with a couple of the neighborhood kids, just a couple of houses down. Okay. Well, number one, why in the heck would I tell you that? What's that got to do with anything? And the other thing is, you could just walk outside and find out I was lying. But we don't ever expect that, so we just believe. It's it's you know it's not just their pathology; it is ours. It is the way we're built as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Have Have you thought through or even developed any uh, like questions that help you dig down deeper to determine whether or not something is a truth or whether or not something's a lie?
1: Yeah, I you know, and and anybody who has kids is especially kids who are early teenagers. Okay, uh, you know, people know how to how to ask those crazy because because one of the great questions that you can ask is now how do you know that is true? How do you know that is true? Uh, because, you know, especially 12, 13, 14-year-olds, they will come home from school with some of the most amazing things. You know, know, hey, uh, I met this guy today. John and his dad uh, rides dolphins every day. He rides them. And, I I mean, you know, the kids, he'll believe anything. Some kid at school. Now, how do you know that is true? Well, John said so. Okay, so that's the only way that you know that is true, because at some point, you know, you need to, you need to think about whether what you've been told is rational, right? I mean, there's a lot of different ways. That, I mean, there there are, there are things. It's like here's here's a here's a. An amazing example. Um, Have you ever, ever heard a congressman or a senator that was in favor of a complicated tax code that nobody can understand? I mean, have you ever heard of one say, you know, we really should have? Okay, then then why do we have a complicated tax code that nobody can understand? Because there's 545 people in America that enact every law, make every rule, they sign every regulation, they enforce everything. It's one president, uh, nine Supreme Court justices, a um, hundred senators and 435 members of Congress. And if those people did not want that for whatever reason, if they didn't want a complicated tax code that nobody could understand, we wouldn't have one dude. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, have you, have you, have you ever heard, you know, any of these guys that that are in favor of things that you think, why do we have that? You know, why is that going on? Why is that something that we deal with? Well, if the, it, it's just like most of us know, I, I, I say most of us, I, I think a lot of people feel like how in the world does somebody go get elected to Congress and have no money, and in you know, six years they're rich. How, how does this happen? I mean how, how does it happen? And, and you know, I mean, I'm from Alabama. We had a governor that right out of college was elected to a county commission. He never had an, he never had a job. He, he filled an elected position his entire life all the way to governor and worth 40 million bucks. I mean, how, how does that happen, right? And so, so you know, you look, and I, I think that uh, a lot of people know that term limits are the only thing that can level the playing field, that, you know, that these guys should not be senators for life they should not be congress people for life There are, there's are too many you know opportunities to do their own things or whatever I, you know I mean this was not how this is not what the founding fathers intended the founding fathers intended for the best and smartest of us to go give a little time and come back do we really look at these people and think these are the best and the smartest now I don't think so but term limits could stop it. Unfortunately, the only way we will ever have term limits is right there in the hands of 545 people that don't want term limits.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. What, um, I, want, I want to ask you about um, how you got into writing and everything. But before that, what, what else has uh, stood out to you from how to kill 11 million people that you want to talk about
1: I've, I've written, uh, I, I've written a bunch of books. I, you know, yeah. I've uh, written a bunch that, uh, that businesses use, that families use a real one called the traveler's gift. Yep. Um, uh, one called the noticer, the Heartmender mender, of the lost choice, uh, bottom of the pool is a nonfiction book that, uh, uh, Forbes just said, uh, one of the seven books entrepreneurs should read a uh, book called the little things, uh, several New York times bestsellers and, and, uh, but I'm all over the map. I, you know, I write about whatever I'm interested in. So,
0: yeah, I'm, I'm curious of what made you decide whenever you were, uh, you know, first getting into writing, um, to decide to go, um, you know, prim- primarily you tell via store, via a lot of stories, you
1: right? Know, right.
0: What made you decide or, or, Walk me through the process of what made you decide, like choosing to write primarily through stories.
1: I, I think is is the way I learn. You know, I mean, I learn by stories. I, I if you tell me the facts, unless the facts have stories in them, man. I you know the facts. I I can remember the facts right up until it's time to take the test. But uh, you know, you tell me a story, I'll remember it forever. I think it's probably why. I became a fan of history as an adult. You know, I hated it in school, but if I'd had a history teacher who ever came into the class and said, hey, today I want to tell you a story, then I, I would have been all over it. And, and now I know, you know, history, that's all that is. It's just stories. And, and even with history, you know, you have to be discerning. Okay. I, I have, I tell my publishers every time I write a book, because most of my books, you know, will have some historical tie in in some way or another, you know I mean? I Right. I mean, the, the traveler's gift is about a time traveler. Okay. And, but it has some historical time, you know, tie ins because he's going back in time, but I have to tell my publisher, almost every time I write a book, I have to make the speech again about how history is determined. There's a big difference in the past and history because the past is what actually happened. History is what somebody recorded. Okay. And, and so, you know, there'll be times that, that I'll write something and, the, uh, you know, the copy editor will jot notes and say, well, I, you know, I can't find evidence of this. And it seems like more, da da, da, da and, you know, I found that so-and-so and I'm like, look, you really got, you, you know, if you, if you want to find the truth, you know, you, you got to really dig deep to understand how this stuff happened. You know, if there was a war, you know, a, a thousand years ago, well, there were tons of people that went home from the war and they told their stories of the war. And then, you know, those people told their kids and then they told their kids and somewhere along the line, somebody decided to write a book about it. And so they wrote the book. And then when people read the book, somebody read that book and said, that's not what my granddaddy said. And then, They wrote another book with what their granddaddy said. And then by the time a thousand years go by, you can go on the internet and you can find 50 different versions of the same battle. And, and so at at that point, you have to either determine which one carries the weight of the truth or which one, you know, makes the point you want to make, but it, you you can't really go back into time because so much of this stuff was oral history before it was written down, and even when it was written down, I mean, if you if you think there's not differing views, next time uh, next time there's some kind of traffic accident, just grab two or three people that watched it and hear the different stories about the thing that just happened.
0: Yeah, what, what have been some of, and whether whether it's stuff that you've um, already written about or planned on writing about, or whatever it might be, what are your favorite stories uh, through history or through the past?
1: Yeah, you know, I love the kind of stories that, that people haven't, uh, for whatever reason, haven't found. You know, I understand in school, you know, they're having to teach a version of history that... Follows a, a, a familiar timeline, you know. I mean, if you're going through, um, you're teaching American history, you know, you're gonna start with the founding. Then you, I mean, there's you can't skip the Civil War. You can't skip World War One, World War Two. You know, you got to do it all. And so, there's not time to delve into little the rabbit trails, but I, but I think the rabbit trails are sometimes the thing where you find just the most amazing places. And I, you know, I've got a, I've I've got a site, it's a, it's a subscription site uh, called Wisdom Harbor. And, and, uh, but we're, we've opened it up And opening up pieces of it during this time, people can go, you can go to wisdomharbor.com and get on several different docs. And we do a lot of the storytelling in this thing, but we open this up for free right now. And uh, one of the best stories that that I can ever remember finding is in uh, a book that I wrote called uh, The Traveler's Summit. It was the sequel to The Traveler's Gift. And, and by the way, for people who are uh, working with their kids at home or whatever, we're also making available uh, the curriculums for 12 of my books. So, uh, but there's this, there's this story about a guy named Eric Erickson in uh, The Traveler's Summit. And Eric Erickson was an oil wildcatter. Um, right before World War II, and lived in Texas, and he had uh, made a lot of money with oil. And, and so at some point, I'm going to try to make this very short, but at some point, right, because the whole story, again, is in that book, uh, The Traveler Summit. But at some point before the war, he started, uh, like, mouthing off uh, in favor of Hitler and against the Jewish people, and got more and more public about what he was saying, and people who had known him for a long time just were horrified. You know, it's like they didn't know he thought this way, and and uh, then at some point, you know, he like made a big scene in a restaurant, and and uh, it made the newspapers, and and uh, then he actually denounced his american citizenship and this was a you know pretty like a famous guy in that area and all and he denounced his american citizenship and and moved to sweden you know and uh and so there in sweden he was going to start you know his oil businesses and all like that and uh there were all different kinds of people going through sweden at that point and he kind of kept up his talking and was approached by uh, some Nazis who actually connected him with Himmler. And there was a a challenge going on with the Nazis right then. And that was that they were about to create synthetic oil. Um, They already had plants going and they were about to create synthetic oil and and had these plants but they were all hidden so well and and working underground well eric erickson talked himmler into investing in a synthetic oil plant that he would build in sweden because it was um, you know it was a, a place that was neutral and you know he said if the war goes badly for the Nazis, you will have your money in a safe area, in a safe investment. and And so he was in the oil industry anyway. and And so Himmler, you know quietly went for it. and And of course, to create a synthetic oil factory in Sweden, he had to know how it was done. And so uh, Himmler gave him papers. And he had, uh, he had a paper actually signed by Adolf Hitler to travel anywhere in Germany and see these plants and, and understand the technology. And, um, and so he was in and out, uh, of, of there for like 18 months. And curiously, uh, almost every time he would visit one, it would be bombed and destroyed after he visited it and, uh and so then he'd go back and you know report on it but um as it turns out i mean he was uh, he was only he was only suspected twice once one of the people that was working with him uh was marched right beside him and shot by the nazis right before and they were watching him to see how he reacted uh and then the other time was somebody who thought he had been killed uh, and recognized him and knew he kind of knew a little bit about, you know, was very suspicious about his past. And so he followed them outside the restaurant and this person went into a phone booth and was actually calling to report this. And uh, Eric Erickson drug him out of the phone booth into an alley and killed him with his pocket knife. And after the war, uh, the, the State Department held a big event for like a 1,000 people in Dallas. And, and uh, it was like a celebrate the war thing. And they, uh, halfway into the dinner, uh, got up and uh, the, the head of this thing uh, actually uh, introduced the audience to the guest of honor for that night and introduced Eric Erickson and when he came out, people were like horrified. But then the state department told them that this has all been a ruse. And even from the very beginning, he was doing this for his country. But this guy, uh, you know, I mean, this is one of the most important points ever in the war because basically, you know, I mean, these guys had jets, On the ground the Nazis had jets but we ran them out of fuel Uh, you know they couldn't get it anywhere and they couldn't manufacture it and so that was a huge part of winning the war and it's a guy most people have never heard of
0: Mm -hmm. yeah that's that's such a cool story and even just speaking of stories what what have you found have been uh, some key things or stuff just stuff that you've learned about writing good stories over the years
1: you know, I love to read, I love to read people for different reasons. And, and, uh, you know, I, I read, uh, a guy named Bernard Cornwell to really learn how to tell a story. You know, I, I think that, that he probably tells stories better than anybody I've ever seen in print. And, and, um, uh, and then there there are different authors that, that I read to to see different things or I learn different things. Uh you, you know, I, I think that when people can can relate to a character, I think that is a an important part of a story. But I also think one of the best parts of a story is when the reader knows something that the characters have not figured out yet that none of the characters in the book have figured it out and yet the reader is ahead of them by design I I, that's a very cool thing I also think it's important to get to get into the head of how people thought at a certain time one of, the, one of the best books I've ever read in my life, and it's actually the funniest book I've ever read in my life, is Forrest Gump, uh, w- written by Winston Grimm. Winston lives, like, I don't know, 30 minutes from me. And uh, and most people have seen the movie, but they hadn't read the book. I read the book 15 years before the movie ever came out. And the book is, is brilliant because, you know, Forrest Gump is – an idiot you know this is a guy that you know is just he's just an idiot but the book is narrated by him and so it's in first person and so to to read a book to to read about a character who is telling stories about himself knowing that he is an idiot it's just it's brilliant you know and and so it's something most people don't think about but anytime that you can suspend belief or 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 bring people into i think that stories touch emotions and i think that when people are emotionally connected they're more active in their decision making process Mm -hmm.
0: What do you think from from just your conversations with people and even your own journey into writing that most people don't expect whenever it comes to writing things well?
1: What What is, say again, I'm sorry, I had a hard time hearing you. What, what do you think that most people don't,
0: or what do you think most people underestimate whenever it comes to writing things well?
1: Oh, I, I think that most people don't understand that writing is... Is more discipline than it is creativity. I mean, you know, I don't know that you can create discipline, but you can certainly discipline your creativity. And and so I think you know I've talked to tons of people say, yeah, I'm I'm gonna write a book one day. And I'll say, really, when when are you gonna do it? Ah, you know, I'm just kind of waiting to be inspired. And and, you know, and I want to say. I want to say, look, I've written 26 books and I am inspired for maybe a couple of hours with every book and it's like right at the very first. Right when I think about the idea and I think this would be good, yeah, this is then I'm really excited. The rest of it is work. You know, you can look up on a book, but to do it again and again and again, you have to learn how to do it. Now, when I say that, don't let that intimidate you if, you if you're wanting to write a book because people say, well, I don't know how to write a book. Yeah, okay, well, neither did John Grisham before he wrote a book, right? I mean, neither did I before I wrote a book. I mean, you, you can't find an author that knew how to write a book before they actually wrote one. And, and so, it's, it's a process that you, you figure out, you know, it people say, well, what do I write about? Well, what do you like? You know, what kind of book do I I write? "Oh, well, what kind of book do you like to read? And, you know, what are you interested in? I, I mean, The Traveler's Gift was the first novel that I ever wrote, and, you know, I remember thinking, I, I don't know how to do this, but I remember thinking, well, what do I like? You know and I and I went and I got 10 books that I really liked. I laid them out on the floor, and I sat in a chair. And I looked at these books and I think, you know, why do I like these books so much? And one of the first things that I figured out that I liked about all those books is they started with action. There was something going on right then right when I started and I, I didn't, you don't really know kind of what's, why it's happening, but something's going on. You know, there's not five pages of, you know, it was a beautiful, it was beautiful weather and, you know, the clouds were floating across the sky. I mean, I, you know, I, I, five, I can't take five pages of that. I want something to happen right off the bat. And, and so that's what I did. And then I, I thought, okay, well, yeah, how do you end a chapter? What is I like about you? Well, I always wanted to keep reading it. I wanted to keep reading the book. Okay, well, you want to keep reading the book, you got to end the chapter with something that makes you want to start the next chapter. Because you know, how many times you're reading and you go, I, I'm i only going to read to the end of this chapter, then I'm turning out the lights. But then you get the end of the chapter, you go, so well, dang it, you know, I keep reading here. <laughs> and And so if you can keep people going like that, and that's just a matter of of holding back or foreshadowing. Okay, you know it's it's like somebody has somebody has their hand on the doorknob, and if they'd only known what was on the other side,
0: mm-hmm.
1: they'd never open the door. And that's the end of the chapter. It's like, oh crap. Okay.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yep. Read in the next chapter.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> uh, what? what have been uh a couple of books that you've read that have um helped shape who you are
1: huh um, definitely the greatest salesman in the world by ogmandina that that definitely shaped me um there's a book called run with the horseman by Farrell sams that shaped me but but if i had to pick if i had to pick a book and i said well this is my favorite book um it would be a book called the old man and the boy by robert Rourke. and that book was written before i was ever born and you know, my son loves that book. I, I've i never given that book to anybody that didn't just flip out over it. And, you know, somebody had told me about it several years ago, and I had never even heard of it. And he said, oh, yeah, it's my favorite book. And my dad gave me this when I was 12, never read it 10 times. And I'm like, really? And, you know, then I asked a couple of friends and they said, oh, yeah, it's one of my favorite books. I'm like, where have I been? And I ordered it uh, from Amazon, and and I'm you know on the front of the book. Again, this was written like in 1957 or something like that, and on the front of the book it said, "Over 150,000 copies sold," and I was halfway through the first chapter, and I went and I told my wife, I said, "Do you see this?" I said, "I am embarrassed." to have sold a million of anything when there's a book this good that has only sold 150,000 copies, but it's the old man and the boy. And it's a story uh, that, that was before the depression. It was like it set in the 1920s. And it's this kid growing up with his grandparents and his granddad's the old man who teaches him you know, hunting and fishing and finding sea turtles at night and ducks and quail and, and, you know, going to uh, different places, meeting different people. It's just, it's just an amazing book. Mm -hmm. And then the last thing I want to ask you
0: is what are, what are some of your favorite things that you're learning right now?
1: Well, Right now, I feel like I'm I'm in a new process of thinking. I mean, we, we all have to be, right? We have to figure out how to be valuable to other people during this time. Um, you know, I'm a speaker, and all my dates have been canceled, right? I, I'm an author, and Amazon is not going to be carrying – they're not restocking any books. They're using all their shelf space for, uh, for um, uh, you know, essentials and all, which I, I understand that. Okay, but uh, you know, we've got. If anybody wants any of my books, you can get AndyAndrews.com as how you can get them. But you know, it just we we all have to figure out during this time how to be valuable to other people. You know, and we have to figure out. You know how how do we stick together? How do we find something through this? How do we create hope instead of fear? Um, you know the, the there is no reward for fear. The only reward of fear is more fear, and and yet hope is like faith. You know the you know faith and fear are almost exactly the same things on opposite ends of the spectrum because faith and fear are both believing in something that has not happened and you can't see. And so the reward of continuing in fear is just more fear and living on that brink of insanity I suppose and and the reward of faith is to finally finally see what you have believed. And and I believe we're going to get through this. I believe that if you look at our history we have a history, humanity has a history of solving uh, dire situations. We, you know, we have created vaccines for polio and diphtheria and tuberculosis and typhoid and cholera and measles and mumps and chickenpox and swine flu and Spanish flu and rotavirus. I and mean, we, you know, smallpox in the last 100 years of its existence killed over 500 million people, and we created a vaccine for it. And in 1980, the World Health Organization declared smallpox eradicated from the earth. And so, you know, our researchers and scientists right now who are working on COVID-19 are more experienced than ever, than they ever were because all these things that they defeated, they were viruses. So we're ahead of the game, and we'll get there. We just have to be smart, and we have to work together and and um, figure out ways to be valuable to each other.
0: Yeah. Well, Andy, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. If people want to continue to learn more from you, I mean, you mentioned that they can go to andyandrews.com. Is there anywhere else that people can you know follow and learn from you?
1: Yeah, you know, Facebook and uh Instagram. Um, and what am I on Instagram, Matt? Andy, Andy Andrews author on Instagram. <laughs> and then Facebook's Andy Andrews. We've got a YouTube channel. Uh, so, but man, keep up. We're, we're you know, figuring out ways. We're, we just put out a really cool video today. So. Awesome. Well, thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you, Caleb, very much.
0: Andy, thanks very much for being on the podcast today. It was great having you. Thanks for spending a few minutes investing in us and and just helping us continue to grow as people and as leaders and as women as and as men too. I want to remind you that the music that you're listening to is brought to you by my good friend Sam Massey. If you have any audio or visual or I guess video needs, he is the person to hit up for any of that type of stuff also I want to encourage you to check out andy's book which just re-released how to kill 11 million people thanks so much for listening to today's episode of the podcast until next time keep learning and keep growing